going to read in the word of God, going to read in 1 John chapter 3 from verse from verse 4 to verse 18, uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 10 to 15, but I want to put it in its context. So John's first letter, if you have a church Bible, it's on page uh, 1867, and we're going to read from verse 4 to verse 18 of First John 3. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, as Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God... And the children of the the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Probably worked out by now that my favourite hymns are the ones where we sing to God and not about ourselves. Or even about him, though those some great hymns there, he do that. I love that line where it says, I have no idea if the translation's accurate, uh, at the end of the third verse, if scorn, despised, forsaken, naught severs thee from me. You'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? <laughs> nothing severs me from Christ. No, nothing severs Christ from me. Think about that. But not necessarily now, because we want to look at First John. But go away and think about it, because there's a lot there in that thought. John is talking in 1 John, a lot of what he does, not all, is what we might call the tests of life. To test the reality of people's profession. True believers, we know, have eternal life. He said that near the beginning. He said that we have, the apostles have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and that His purpose in writing is that we too might have that fellowship, that we might have that life, the eternal life, which comes in Christ. 
the eternal life which comes when we are, as he says in chapter 2 and verse 29, born of him, born of God. Chapter 3 here in verse 9 again, whoever has been born of God. Born of God and therefore having a new nature. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, this radical change has taken place. And some of what he does then is the, what we might call the tests. A man called Robert Law wrote a commentary on First John called the tests of life. And there are three main tests and they come in this central section of the book. We were looking with, I've been looking with you over a few Sunday mornings at the test of righteousness there in chapter 3 from verse 4 to verse 10. And it goes seamlessly into this second test, the test of love for chapter 3 verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So the verse is a hinge between the first and second tests. The third test is the doctrinal test, the test of faith in Christ, which we come to at the beginning of chapter 4. But here it's love. Love to the brothers, love to Christians. Now what I'm going to say this morning, as, you, as we go through, and I'm just going to go through these verses, sometimes some of this application, the obvious application is to, as a challenge to the person who says I'm a Christian to say, are you really a Christian? And sometimes the evident purpose is that we, or the evident application is to say, beware of those who say that they are Christians and are not. And it sort of goes back and forth, and I think we'll see that as we go through. So we're not, it would be very easy to preach, or be, it would be possible, uh, to preach this passage where all you do is point to people out there and say, watch out for them. It would possibly be possible to point just to people here and say, and what about you, what about you? But I think this, this part of God's word points us both ways. Let's come to verse 11. For this, why is it, why is it that he, verse 10, who does not love his brother is not of God? That's the end of verse 10. Why is that so? Well, because he says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, it's a foundational commandment. John has spoken about this in chapter 2. But he's referring back, of course, to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ just after he washed his feet and before that great discourse uh, uh, on the night when he was betrayed. In John 13 and verse 34, the Lord Jesus says, A new commandment, he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love have love for one another. This new relationship which is coming about through the death of Christ, where he is the head of a body, a spiritual head of a spiritual body, who are his disciples, who are true Christians. And he says within that body, there is to be a new quality of love, a new type of love, a new spiritual family to be loved. And of course it is a command. And so we must work at it. All commands in the scripture imply two things. One, that you don't do them automatically. And two, that you can do them. 
we have to qualify that second statement sometimes if someone's an unbeliever there are many things they can't do but when inhabited and inspired and empowered by the holy spirit we can we can love our brothers we have to work at it but only those born of god can begin to work at it by the holy spirit Now, there is a challenge in these verses, but it comes more from verse 16 onwards. A challenge to Christians who are deficient in love, which of course we all are. And I don't want to look at that so much this morning. What are we looking at this morning is this test of life. In other words, the verses in front of us here, from verse 10 to verse 15, in contrast to what comes afterwards are written to show up false brothers, whether that be the person who thinks they're a Christian, or whether it be those who we'll be having to deal with who claim to be Christians and are not. In other words, these verses are written to show up false brothers, not to beat up true Christians, not to make us feel small and diminished. But the challenge is there. But the challenge to Christians in terms of How this works out in daily life is more in the verses that follow this. This is saying, look, there are going to be people, make sure you're not one of them, who says, I have been saved, I have been redeemed, I'm a child of God, I have eternal life, the Holy Spirit dwells within me, all these scriptural phrases, and it's not true. And then also it says, and watch out for the people who will make those claims and try to ensnare you into sin and know that it's not true. That the proof of the pudding is the eating. The proof of of being a Christian is love for brothers. And so he says, uh, we should love one another, verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Billy has been looking at Cain a bit a few weeks ago and it would be very easy to take too long on this verse because none of us are challenged by what happened to Cain because we're not Cain and we haven't murdered our brothers so I don't want to spend too long on this verse but we need to begin here because John does Cain is the negative example the first man who had a brother killed him it's not is it a good start it shows the reality of the fall into sin and we're told in chapter 4 of Genesis and verse 3 that Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and the Lord respected Abel and his offering but he didn't respect Cain and his offering Cain had brought an offering of the fruit of the ground and and so Cain killed Abel because the Lord said Abel's offering is good and yours is not Cain was very angry and his countenance fell and he took Abel and he went out into the field and he killed him. Cain committed this terrible sin. Why? Well, John says here he was of Satan, as indeed all human beings are since the fall and therefore again, the historical nature of what took place in Eden is abundantly uh, brought to, to our attention again. Why was Abel different? That's the question, isn't it? The question should arise in our mind when we know something of our own hearts and we know what human sin does and we can see that all around us. 
The question that should arise in our minds is not, why did Cain kill his brother, but why did Abel not try to kill his brother? But Abel was different. Abel, we can see by what he did, was a recipient of the grace of God and he brought an acceptable offering. He brought an offering that said, I am trusting that I need redemption and God will bring redemption. I have killed an animal. I am offering a sacrifice. I am offering blood. And there is Cain, who takes of the fruit of the ground, which God had pronounced curse and said effectively, well, this is good enough for God. I'm going to offer what I want. I don't care what God is like. I will offer what I want to offer. That's why God looked with favour on Abel and his offering and not Cain's. But Cain then hated his brother because of Abel's righteous deeds, offering right sacrifices in faith. And so he murdered him in his own self-righteousness. That is the point. Cain didn't see what he'd done wrong in his offering. And from the verses that follow, it seems pretty clear that he didn't really see why he was wrong in murdering Abel either. Here, was, here is the sin in the heart. Here is, you see, John is using this as an example. A human brother, Cain has a human brother, a fleshly brother, and he kills him. And he's saying to Christians, don't be like that. And everyone would say, well, of course, if I go around murdering my fellow Christians, I am not a Christian. But that's the point, isn't it? Because he goes on in the end to make it clear that it's not just not murdering. We have to do good. But why? Why did Cain murder his brother? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. And so he says to Christians at this point, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Before he comes on to bring home this test of life, you are, say you're a Christian, do you love your brothers? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? He, he carries on making this point about Cain. He says, Cain murdered Abel. Abel was the first martyr. When we look at what the scripture says about sin, we should not be surprised that Cain murdered Abel. And he says to believers, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why, when we go on from the murder of Abel, we get to, through many murders, to the greatest of them all. We get to the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to the one who was taken by the hands of wicked men. We get to the one who was betrayed uh, and, and the Pharisees who thought they were the righteous people the Pharisees in their invincible self-righteousness hated the Holy Son of God and said, crucify him. And they did. Why did the Pharisees hate the Lord Jesus Christ? Because, go back to verse 12, this is speaking of Abel, but it's of Christ too. His works were, uh, the, their works were evil, and Christ's works were righteous. It's the distinction, isn't it? It is perhaps surprising that the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect sinless holiness and righteousness 
was able to live for three and a half years of public ministry before they nailed him to a cross. But the hatred was building up, read the Gospels, right from day one, when he heals a man because he heals him on the Sabbath. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ hated by the religious who thought that they were all right. And sinners who are the self-righteous Sinners who are self-righteous are the foremost haters, aren't they, of Christians. People who think that they are right with God. They are the ones who hate true believers most. You can see that with, with Muslims, you can see it with Jews, but you can see it most particularly in our society uh, day by day, probably this is what you find, with those who call themselves Christians. Who... You meet someone and they go to church and you start talking about your church and their church. And they start asking you about what we do and we say what we do and what do we believe. And you get on to that and you get on to our beliefs on the Lord Jesus Christ, on who he is, that he's the son of God, on his death on the cross, on the fact that we are all sinners and we can only be saved through the death of Christ. And then you begin to find this person is, is closing down. They don't believe that. They, they, they don't believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And then you might get on to moral issues and you start talking about the dreadful things that go on in our society. And you get perhaps onto something like abortion. And again, you find that, that, that they're on the opposite side. And this is someone who says they're a Christian and as you talk to them, if you're trying to develop a relationship, that will be a relationship where on their side the hatred and the opposition grows. As with the Lord Jesus, as people found out more about him, the opposition grew from those who believed that they were right with God. And of course the Lord Jesus says this, John has said it here, but he's only echoing, isn't he, the words of the Lord Jesus again in that discourse just before his death. We're in John 15. He says at verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here is John. Do not be Marvel, my brothers, if the world hates you. Well, we expect the world to hate us because we claim that we are believers. We claim that Christ is the only saviour. We tell people they're sinners. We tell them there is no hope without Christ. We can expect them not to like it or us. But the greatest hatred comes from those who would say that they are believers and are not. The world hates evidences of grace and its recipients. But the false believers hate evidences of grace and indeed teachings about grace. Teachings that we are only saved by the grace of God. Teaching that we have no righteousness of our own. Teaching that we are all helpless sinners in the hands of an angry God until he comes in his grace and saves us. Teachings that all our good works, as the scripture says, are like filthy rags. And when, when, when people find that's what we believe, then the sharpest point of the hatred is from those who would say that they are Christians and they're not. And that's the point that John is making here. 
And the fault line is ever widening, isn't it, in these days? Between those who claim that they are Christians, and yet many of them are acquiescing in sin and promoting sin. And this whole thing we've been looking at, I don't want to go back into it again, we're all fed up with it, but there was Pride Month and there were church after church saying we're promoting these things, we're, we're celebrating homosexuality and and their, their fault line is clear. And then you get the Bishop of Liverpool who says it basically on transgenderism, that, or, or, no, this is, sorry, on homosexuality again, on, on homosexual marriage and the blessing of it. He says basically to the vicars in his diocese, if you don't agree with me, I don't want you in my diocese. In other words, if you don't want me to say that a sin is right, then I don't want you ministering the word in my diocese. Do you see the fault line? It's becoming ever clearer, isn't it? But we need to point, not just with the one finger, but with the three that come back to us. Let's move on to verse 14. (coughs) Because John says the world's going to hate us, but there's a sudden transition here, isn't it? Why does the world hate us? Because we're Christians. Well then, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. We know we're no longer part of this world that hates. Why? Because we love the brethren. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you can see all around the evidence of the world hating Christians. What about you? You as an individual, you're not likely to go out and kill your brother like Cain killed Abel. But do you hate? Because love, you see, is more than an emotion, isn't it? Love is action which is fueled by affection. Love is how you treat people because of how you feel toward them in an ongoing way. That's how God loves us in Christ. He loves us in an ongoing way and therefore he does good to us. If we can speak of God like this, the settled state of his heart is love towards his people in Christ. And the settled state of the heart of the Christian is love towards Christians. And therefore we do the good that verses 16 to 18 come on to speak of. So the challenge that faces us always that I would bring it home this morning to each person here who says they're a Christian and I've no idea uh, if this is going to hit home to anyone and I hope it doesn't. But the challenge is, what is your real attitude to believers in your heart which no one else sees? You can be, as a true believer, cold-hearted to the real needs of those Christians whom you can assist, verse 17. We can fail in this, but that's not the point I'm making here. The point here, this is deeper. This is your whole underlying heart attitude to those who are the children of God. What do you think about them? Do you want, for example, to talk to them? Especially about God, about Christ, about spiritual things. Or would you rather really that they they weren't here? You could just worship God on your own. 
Do you pray for them? Or do you just never pray for them? Are you? Answer it for yourself, not for anybody else. Are you actually glad to see the back of them? And that though it might appear that you enjoy having fellowship with Christians, actually, you just don't really want to be bothered. Do you find, as we go deeper, that you actually prefer the company of the world? There can be those who find it hard to talk to other Christians and want to be on their own, but if you want to if you say well i've come to church but really i'd rather be with others rather be with unbelievers i find it easier to be with them in my leisure time when i have a choice of company i i i don't seek out the christians i seek out others you see this is the real test isn't it if you love someone you want to be with them you want to talk to them if you're a christian you will certainly pray for them you're glad for opportunities to meet with them you you wish that we wasn't time to go home as it were is that you or looking in the depths of your own heart you have to say no that's not really me Because if that is not really you, you have seriously to consider your spiritual state. Certainly you need to repent. But even deeper than just repenting of your attitude, you need to say, am I a believer at all? For the clear contrast is made here. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides, remains in death. The clear contrast. Life... Christian life, spiritual life, God's life in the soul leads to loving your brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. And though, because the Holy Spirit within calls from one to another. And those who don't love Christians are still in death. The transfer from one realm to another has not happened. That's the the, the striking illustration, isn't it, that... Uh, Paul uses, we were looking, some of us have been looking at this in Colossians, uh, in Colossians 1 and verses 13 to 14, where he says of Christians that he has delivered us or transferred us from the, or delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That, That great change, we're in a different realm than we were in before. God has picked us up and put us somewhere else. He's picked us out of the realm of darkness and put us into his son. The saving grace of God. What the scriptures represent in many ways. One way is the new birth, isn't it? The Lord Jesus, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And so, here is someone who says, well, these people say they're Christians. I'm a Christian. But I don't have anything in common with them. And that's the tragedy, isn't it? That there are so many people who say that they are true, that they are believers in Christ, who would call themselves Christians, and they have clearly nothing in common with true believers. You remember how the psalmist says, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? And there is the person who says, no, not really. I don't want to have anything really to do more than I have to. 
with these people who say that they are born again believers. You see, the problem is, as it was in John's day, that there were people who had professed some sort of faith in Christ and we cannot know the hearts and they would have been baptised and they would have joined the church and then it becomes evident that they're not really believers. We're not surprised by that. The Lord Jesus Christ taught a parable about four uh, types of, of soil into which the same seed was planted and two of those seemed to grow up and then fell away. There are those who have a sort of intellectual conversion. Uh, they come to believe the facts, but they're not really brought in their heart to despise their own sin, and so instead they despise ordinary believers, especially those who live holy lives. They may attend a gospel church, but they are completely fruitless. They have not been brought from death to life. Make sure that's not you. Or there are those who have what we might call an emotional conversion. And in some meeting perhaps where the emotions are played upon and they make some sort of profession and they say they've been born again and people think they have. But in the end, they drift away. They stop meeting with believers because they do not feel any emotional affinity with believers. And so they fall away. Make sure that that's not you. Make sure this morning, if you have made a profession of faith, which you believed was genuine, and others believe was genuine, and you get to the point, I don't say necessarily this morning, you get to the point at some point where you realise actually that, that as these Christians talk of their experience of God and their love for God and they sing his praises and everything, and you just find there's nothing in my heart going out like this. Be honest and come to the point of realising that perhaps you've never become a Christian at all and take that to God first and if it's the case then you're going to have to come and say I wasn't a Christian but I am now once you have come to God. Don't go on and this is wider than love don't go on throughout your life Knowing with a gradual increase of knowledge that you're not truly a Christian, but you're ashamed to admit that because you said you are, and there are consequences it might produce. You might be married to a believer. There are big consequences it might produce if you have to say, I'm not really a Christian at all, and you shy away from them, and because of that you never come to God Truly, it happens. Make sure it doesn't happen to you. If you claim to have been born again, what John is saying here, isn't it? If you claim to have been born again, can you prove it? Can you prove it by your love? It might be you see that you, you come and you hear uh, and you believe the doctrine and you live a righteous life outwardly as these other tests of life are and maybe you even come and you sing with a certain amount of joy the hymns about Christ and yet you have to say sadly that you don't really love God and you don't really love believers 
You see, we're not, are we now, having to point outwardly. Of course there are many who don't even claim to have a new birth, but say they're part of the church. That's not who John has in mind here, is he? Those who will abide in death indeed because it's their natural state and you can look out and you can say here are the popes of Rome in the Middle Ages burning Christians at the stake. We know they're not a believer. That's not what you do to your brothers. And you can see many now, as we said, who say, well, I'm, I, I, get away from me to Christians. Well, you know they're not a believer. Don't be fooled. Don't have rose-tinted spectacles. If they hate you as a, because you're a Christian, then they're not a Christian. But we need to see, bring it deeper into the heart of each of us. To say, oh, I can see that those people, that's, of course they're not Christians, but we need to come. What about me? To go on to verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. You see, here we were at verse 12, weren't we? There is Cain murdering his brother. And we can all sit there and say, I don't do that. I wouldn't do that. Of course I wouldn't do that. And yet you see that John says, but if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. And of course, again, he's not bringing this out of anywhere, is he? It's the word of God. And we could say, of course, the Holy Spirit could inspire him to write this. And so he has, but he is not taking it out of, out of nowhere. Because the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21, you have heard that it was said from of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. You see, the test that is here is one that only each one of us can look at for ourselves. What is really going on in my heart? Because it's possible to live in a church and because you don't want to stand out, or even because of conscience sake, you do enough good to all the believers around, you are pleasant enough, you are kind enough, you fit in enough, that no one suspects, they all say, of course they're a Christian, they treat you as such, they love you as such. And yet you know, in your heart, that there is something wrong in there. That there is something missing in there. And if you search your own heart, and not everyone does, by the word of God, but if you search your own heart, you come and you see that at the root, the very root in the bottom of your soul is not love for your brothers and sisters. It's hatred for them. You despise them. You reject them. You actually don't really want anything to do with these Christians. Though the outward appearance can be very different. And if... That's what's in you. It shows that eternal life is not in you. God's pure life is not in you. You still have Cain's nature. You cannot obey the command to love your brothers in a Christian, true Christian way, because that command can only be obeyed by the Holy Spirit. And if that hatred is in your heart for your brothers, the Holy Spirit is not there. And you don't want to love them. There is no motive in your, there's nothing in your heart to respond to the Holy Spirit that's in the children of God. Who love one another instinctively because the same Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit dwells within each one. But he doesn't within you. 
You see how we need to, to make sure of ourselves. Let me close with two, uh, two, two conclusions then. One is looking at those who are outside. Don't be fooled by the claims of those who deny that they have eternal life, evidently, by their attitude towards Christians. Don't be gullible. To, don't believe those who have claims which their life denies. We look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we say of him? We can say many things of him, but you can look at him and you can say, surely, can't you? You have to say, he was holy. This is on earth. He was holy. He was humble. He was loving. And who is going to be with him for all eternity? Those who are holy and humble and loving. And those who are proud in their promotion of sin and hate true believers are not going to be with Christ in glory, nor would they want to be. It would be the worst thing that they could possibly imagine. Do not be fooled by false claims, but look at yourself as well. Don't be fooled by your own claims also. The Apostle says, the Apostle Paul says, that you are to test yourself. Do you not know that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Is Christ in your soul this morning? As you look at your brothers and sisters, not just in this church, but those you know elsewhere, does your heart truly go out to them in love because Christ is in your heart truly going out to them in love? Or is all your outward fellowship and brotherly love to believers actually only a sham? Now, as I've said, and I come to a close, but as I've said, I, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I have no one in my mind when I say words like that. Do not think I do. But the bigger the congregation, the more certain it is that there's one person of whom it's true, and I don't know it is here. And no, there's anyone else except you. Look into your souls this morning for your own eternal sake. And make sure that you are truly in Christ. And one of the tests is to say, yes, I love these people because they are mine in Christ. And God works within me and, and I love them. There may be all sorts of differences between me and them. There might be all sorts of problems I might have with them in one way and another. I might even find it difficult to like some of them. But I love them. Can you say that this morning? And if you can, praise God. Because he has brought you from death to life. And you are born of God. And you will be with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is given to us not to sow pillows under our elbows. And deceive us into false hopes. It tells us of the glories of salvation. But it again and again warns us to make sure that we truly are in Christ. For there is no hope outside of him. Speak to us this morning, O Lord. That we might all know that we are in him. Who is eternal life. And help us indeed not to be surprised 
when people, whatever their profession, hate us for loving Christ and loving one another. But may we know indeed that that's what happened to him. This is the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still. Give us grace to follow him, then we pray. We ask it in his name. Amen.